Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here, as always, with David Scott. It's a pleasure to be back, Paul. And our guest this week is one of Australia's most seasoned and accomplished small-cap investors, here to talk to us about the banks um, and how he picks small companies that get him massive double-digit returns over the last year. Uh, It's Benjamin Griffiths. Uh, co-founder and senior portfolio manager at Ellie Griffiths. Uh, ben, great to have you on the show. Great. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. So, uh, look, Ben uh, has a uh, manages $1.8 billion, um, uh, in funds um, across Eli Griffiths, um, but the small cap uh, or the small company fund that he has has had an astonishing performance uh, in the last uh, 10 years, but also in the last year, returned more than 30%. We're going to get into how Ben uh, achieves some of those returns, the way he builds um, those companies um, or builds those profiles for companies uh, and the way he picks stocks um, a little bit later in the show. Uh, and we're probably going to talk about uh, his interest in um, the surf, lifing, uh, surf life saving clubs. Um, uh, out at North Bondi, a very important uh, contributor to the community there. But let's get straight into the big dogs, the banks. Um, We had last week um, uh, Kenneth Hain and his team at the Royal Commission delivered um, their interim report, um, as the government asked them for, and there were some uh, big swings at the banks, particularly when it comes to how people are paid. Um, but also a massive crack at the regulator, um, particularly ASIC, um, a little bit of questions for APRA as well. Um, Ben, uh, one of the great things about this is you, um, having a small cap uh, uh, fund, you don't own um, those those big companies, Um, but what did you take out of this um, from a trading perspective, investment perspective, for 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 the major companies, I think you're right, Paul. You hit it on the head. I can comment without fear or favour. We're 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 not investors in in the big banks. So our mandates don't allow that. Um, but all the same, clearly, as a as most good investors do, um, small cap investors, that is, we've got to keep an eye on every part of the market. Um, so so looking at the uh, at the Royal Commission, I guess I loved the headline the other day. I saw on a, a broken note that said the uh, the interim finding was big on outrage and short on detail. Um, probably no surprise there, really. Um, it's an interim finding. Um, it was just an update on on how the uh, how the um, the commissioner is seeing things and what the what the temperature is like at this point in time. I guess it'll really hot up, and I think we'll reach peak royal commission in November when we have the uh, the bank CEOs present, where they'll get a grilling in terms of um, I guess as the as the closing chapter of the royal commission on on their their views on what has happened and and the path forward. So peak. Royal Commission in in November is how I'd uh, is how I'd read it. Look, in terms of the banks as an investment proposition, they are. Um, I've got to say, as a as as a as an investor, they're looking tantalisingly cheap. Um, they're trading at big discounts to um, to to where they normally trade. They're trading at big discounts to the broader market uh, in terms of PEs. I'm talking 25 percent discounts. They almost don't get a lot cheaper than that. Um, Are they trading around twelve or or so? Time um, multiples. Yeah, that, that's yeah, correct, yeah. and they've still got decent returns on equity across their, their balance sheets. They're sort of thirteen, fifteen percent return on equities. So I look at them, and I was looking the other day. I'm, it's it's good you brought them up. I was looking in terms of the, the value proposition, and I look at it, you know investors staring at them would think, well, wow, a dividend yield of around six percent is about what they pay fully franked, and that feels sustainable. That's a big tick. 
Um, in terms of ownership, um, I think the, the major owners of the banks, of course, are, are the household investors, mums and dads, super, self-managed super funds. They're about 45% on average of the typical bank share register. But they're very under-owned by domestic institutions and they're very under-owned by international investors. So you can see there's, there's a potentially a, a tug-of-war there where you've got the mums and dads well, well exposed and you've got this latent buying force um, in the wholesale end of the market, the institutions here and offshore, that but when, they get, when it gets to a certain price, that uh, they're, they're ready to they'll step swing into in. action. Yeah. And so they'll be critical to supporting them. So I think they're under-owned is, 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 is another bull point that I haven't missed in, in the equation. And given that the, the household investor, the retail investor, it tends to be a bit sticky. He's not he or she are not in a mad rush to sell the banks. Given, given their, their their yield. So you've got a latent buying force sitting there that can really, if it steps up and the coast is clear, will be quite powerful. Regulation, I think, that impacting on the banks, and, and of course, Hayne has come out and said that he thought that the regulators might have been a bit light on um, in terms of their surveillance. But I think regulation generally has been um, much more accommodative than you might have thought. There's been macro potential controls put on investor lending to sort of tap the brakes, and that's all been managed quite nicely. Um, the banks are on track for that, what they call a common equity tier one ratio. They've got to have 10.5% CET1, common equity tier ratio, by January 2020, and um, they're on track for that, which means no need to raise extra extra funds, no need to have equity raising. So you haven't got stock supply there. That's bullish. The, the losses on balance sheet, the loan losses at the moment, are very, very mild. In fact, I saw a report the other day saying that at this stage of the cycle, we're in the mid-cycle, mid-economic cycle, those losses are way below where they normally are in a mid-cycle, so the balance sheets are in good order. There's a tick. Um, interesting to see that the banks coming into the GFC were asset gatherers. They were looking to write as much loans and a bigger loan book as possible. That focus has now changed, and really the banks will enjoy great margin growth from how they treat their deposit their deposit holders. It'll be the deposit side of the equation where they actually enjoy margin expansion, uh, and that goes unnoticed. The focus is always on loan loan rates and how cost mm-hmm. how expensive to repay your mortgage, but the real um, I think the real kicker for bank earnings will come from the way they conduct themselves with their savings accounts. And finally, um, particularly to... particularly with um, uh, this environment that we got with um, interest rates, there's a lot of up- upward pressure on them at yeah. the moment. So sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so do you think that'll transfer um, down to cash uh, accounts in, in in the Australian market? Well, I think that's but part of the trick. Will be um, will we'll be not sharing that with the deposit holders. That'll be the trick. Of course, is being very um, miserly with how the banks share <laughs> the, um, the, the the spoils for deposit holders. That's what I think. So that's where they're going to get margin growth from. Is how they. Uh, I don't want to use the word short change, but how they don't um, pass on um, um, firmer rates uh, down at that end. Well, it's, uh, before you go on, I know you've got one more point to hit, but yeah. um, uh, say there's uh, 20 extra basis points on the um, uh, on 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 rates yeah. um, in the short term money market, but um, for a deposit, um, you might get an extra 10. Um, and that uh, washes through very nicely to the bottom line for the banks. Right? Oh, sure, absolutely. So I think that's the that's the sort of the hidden lever that we don't hear much about. But that's the, where the banks will, I think, actively use. They'll they'll be they'll be miserly with how they look after deposit holders. And deposit holders depends on how the banks have funded their loan books. But they're a growing part of the uh, the funding mix for banks these days, especially CBA, where they've got a very large deposit base. So I think you just got to keep an eye on that. That'll be something that may or may not attract uh, much scrutiny. Final point I was going to make, Paul, is just on why I think the banks are interesting, of course, is the valuations, as I mentioned, big discounts, 20 25% discounts to, to the broader market. They're cheap. They're priced cheaply. They're priced for 
a bad outcome with the Royal Commission. They're, they're priced for a property market that's trying to maybe is, is certainly coming off, and they're priced for bad outcomes there in, in property. They're priced for distress. They're priced for all sorts of things that we're not seeing right now. So the banks, the banks are cheap, and the banks on 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 paper, prima facie, present as a very sensible investment proposition. But there's a couple of wild cards. Which, which, which I know you, you um, significant risks. Yeah, significant say? risks that I that I that I know you're you're, you're dying to um, dying to jump upon, and and this is what tempers my enthusiasm for stepping up and just buy, buying the banks right now. And the first thing is um, we'll have the final Royal Commission um, result um, in in February next year, so we'll find out um, you know what they do with this conflicted commission structures that they've seen. We'll see what they do about um, about applying or insisting the banks apply more discipline to their credit availability and, and credit rationing, and um, and we'll find a bit about whether they decide that the the penalties that have been um, invoked or levied so far, which have been grossly uh, inadequate by the look of things, um, whether that gets stepped up. So there'll be some changes there we need to watch that might have um, uh, ramifications, almost certainly will have ramifications. Yeah. But so it's, it's things like, you know, well, here's a $20 million fine um, to a bank that's that makes between 5 and $10 billion in, in profit over a year. Of that magnitude. I mean, it's almost um, sort of slap on the wrist stuff. And I think in an international context... Uh, our our our, um, our fellows have got off lightly. I mm. think would be how I'd read it. We'll, we'll see what comes out of the Royal Commission, but I think more pertinent really is we are as a country heading to the polls uh, at the federal level at the latest May next year. Um, it feels like if the if the current opinion polls are to be um, to be believed and read correctly that. We're probably odds on for a change in government. Well, M- Malcolm Turnbull would have you believe otherwise that they were ahead in some marginal seats. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so. based off internal Liberal Party. Yes, polling, yeah, 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 yeah. Internal Liberal Party polling that nobody has seen. Yeah, um, that Malcolm Turnbull claims exists. Um, yeah. But yes, uh, you are right. The, the, it does look like currently um, we will have a Labor government. Yes, yeah, and and I think you'll find that um, that, that Bill Shorten and, the, and and his team will keep the banks firmly in the crosshairs. There'll be no taking the foot off the throat on the banks. The, the bank levy at around six basis points levied back in 2017. Uh, I, I, my, that won't be coming off under under a Shorten uh, government. Uh, I suspect it probably goes up. So the, the levy stays. The levy becomes a bit more onerous um, over time for the banks. Shorten or one of his, um, or, or, or certainly a member of his um, shadow bench, have, have already said that when the outcomes of the Royal Commission are known, um, they will be insistent on implanting a mm-hmm. special task force within the yep. Department of Public Prosecutions to absolutely chase down every every transgression and, and pursue it aggressively. Um, you're seeing various tax changes as well, many of which are going to slow down what the banks do. Uh, the, the negative gearing changes will will, if, if, if implemented, impose a slowdown on on, uh, on on the property market, no doubt so about that. So a really interesting question here is to, is the, expen- the extent to which that is already priced. Yeah. Well, uh, my experience accounts for anything. It is that when things are already priced, um, it's always worth seeing just how they react when it comes out, and invariably things, events aren't fully priced at all. Um, I think there's, there's a perception there that the talk on changing, changing the rules of negative gearing will be is fighting talk when you're in the shadow um, shadow government, and when you're actually behind the wheel, you need to modify the stance because 
I suspect in Sydney, um, vacancy rates are always at the best challenging, mm-hmm. at worst impossible. Um, I think uh, tweaking the uh, capital gains tax laws to any great extent will have ramifications on vacancy rates um, to, to, to critical levels. So let's see. But there's a but certainly the stated um, the stated objective of um, of the ALP is to, is to revisit negative gearing, to revisit the capital gains tax concessions, the 50% um, capital gains tax concession, which of course also has ramifications for property investment, which has ramifications for bank lending. Um, and and um, and basically, they, uh, you know, um, Shorten and Co. Have, have have pledged to revisit or amend the invitation invitation system. So, so how, how big there, how big an effect? The, so, for your clients, right? So they would a lot of them would come to you through financial advice firms, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, what is the feedback that you're getting from the market on how people are positioning for the potential change in the uh, investment treatments as of next year, if if there was a change of government? Yeah, well, we're, we're, I guess we're not really fielding um, um, questions to that to to that sort of to that extent or that sort of flavour. Um, you know, we've got a government that we've got a shadow government that clearly has work to do to win the Australian public over and get in. Um, I mean, whether the opposition's policy making has been policy making on the run and lots of great ideas, but whether that's been fully tested by Treasury and, and actually uh, implementable, I don't know. It just feels a lot of what we're hearing, and we'll hear a lot more clearly as we as we move towards May next year. Um, we'll, we'll have a lot more. Um, there'll be a lot more scrutiny brought to bear on on, on what is pledged. So I think it's, it's sufficiently early, Paul, um, in, in in the process for people to get too reactive. Um, investors in small companies typically are. Um, you know, we are a we're a part of their allocation. Um, where you might call it a, a, a the risky end of the spectrum. Um, and so I think the decision to put a dollar with a Neely Griffiths Group fund. Um, is not necessarily persuaded or influenced terribly by by what policy is going to take place and impact on the banks and and and, and broader imputation uh, policy. I think um, our investors are, are really after are looking for us to be looking looking to smoke at the next good idea, the next growth story, um, and of course always mindful of always mindful of what tax changes and what what governmental policy changes are coming, but. It's a bit early until we start seeing a, a formal a formal platform from from uh, from the ALP and what they're planning. It's a bit early to react, I think, and and we're seeing that from investors. They're not reacting. Certainly, you're not seeing anything from like an investment housing perspective. There's not uh, investors banging down the doors trying to go and get into the uh, the market now to go and, uh, and front run any potential change in government and, and uh, tax changes. So obviously, there's a few things that are in the background there. Of course, you know lending restrictions and also what's going on with uh, with house prices falling, supply coming on board. But no, I would have thought you would have seen a lot more investor demand if it was that important in their position that there's going to be this grandfathering of existing arrangements under a change of government that you'll see some pickup in demand. So I haven't seen anything along those lines to go and suggest that there's people positioning so far for the change of government, at least from that perspective. Do you think it might have happened a couple of years ago, though? Oh, potentially, but uh, no, there was a lot of other factors at the time, you know, rising property prices, you know, uh, reasonable yields at the time, obviously they fell a lot, f- uh, you had record low interest rates, uh, you know, there was uh, no strong population growth as there is now, so there's a lot of things that were feeding into that as well. You know, I think everyone knows that there was a period there, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne's uh, property market, where the FOMO was uh, the fear of missing out and uh, buying a property uh, was clear to see you go to any auction on a weekend there was like hundreds of people out the front and people bidding over the top of each other obviously that's not happening now 
We have too many things to cover here. Um, uh, so we're already in a nearly 15 minutes in, but I just want to um, talk quickly about bond yields. Um, uh, regular listeners of the show will be aware that I uh, am fascinated and sometimes bewildered by the underexposure relatively to, um, uh, to global peers of um, Australian uh, retirement funds um, to, to fixed income. Um, but Dave, it's Thursday as we're recording and bond yields, US 10 years, which are the global benchmark, absolutely went bonkers pushed up through 3.2%, uh, the kind of thing, the kind of number that uh, gets uh, only people like us like, excited. Um, oh, trust me, I think, it's getting, I think it's getting a few people in emerging markets excited today, but more, more distressed, you know, looking at the size of some of the losses we're seeing in emerging markets. But you're right, uh, we saw in you know, 10 years, uh, 3.18, uh, just about 3.18 uh, first thing this morning our time. Uh, that's surpassed the year-to-date high that we saw back earlier this year, 3.12. We saw short-term uh, yields lift to slightly less than what we saw with 10s. Uh, somewhat surprising, we saw uh, 30-year bonds as well, rally, uh, not uh, yields push up quite substantially as well, which is not something that you typically see in this sort of reaction. But uh, anyone who, uh, who saw the US data that uh, came out, and obviously you know, the data we've seen over the past few months, including their GDP report, knows how strong the US economy is right now. And the data we saw last night throw in a bit of uh, an optimism that uh, you know, Italy's fiscal malaise won't, uh, won't unravel at this point, at least. Uh, and obviously, we saw you no know, investors react. And, you know, we've seen Aussie dollar you know, fell over 1%. Now it's at two and a half year lows. New Zealand dollar's getting absolutely creamed. Emerging market currencies are being creamed. And pretty much all of it is to do with the, uh, the long bond yields in the US. And uh, Ben, um, a good day for, for stocks. There's a, you know, there appears to be some, uh, some cash coming out uh, that uh, might have been uh, risk averse. Um, and um, uh, the market's up. So yeah. yields are up. And stocks are up. Well, that's right. I mean, I guess we we have a habit of taking our lead from what happens in the US. Um, we saw that the yield curve, as Dave mentioned, the big, a big backup in bonds, and you had the yield curve steepen up very nicely, whether it's the 10-year the to 2-year or the 10-year the to 90-day. That steepened up very nicely. Um, there'd been a lot of fretting and, and, and angst in, in equity markets globally where, where yield curve was dictating sentiment. It was the flattening yield curve uh, to the point of we're going to flatten and we're going to invert and that and then and then the clock's ticking on recession. Eighteen months. Eighteen months. Exactly. <laughs> Eighteen months. But from inversion point to recession and that stuff. I want every investor. You could walk down to Martin Place and I reckon if I stop someone walking <laughs> to the station and say, "What can you tell me about an inverted yield curve?" Um, everybody, everyone was very well versed on the fact that that would be. You know, a, you know what? That is literally the only street in Australia where you could actually do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I beg to differ. I, I'm pretty sure you could do it down at Bondi too if you tried. <laughs> okay, but, yeah, but, yeah. but anyway, I think that the, the, the market will be somewhat relieved. The equity market somewhat relieved that the the the, the flattening or the, in, the inversion is probably further away. Um, what's going on in equities is is certainly related to, to bonds, and at some point, equity markets will get anxious about a, a, a 3.18% 10-year bond. At some point, that will unsettle people, and it'll it, it will come. It'll be a, there'll be a talking head from one of the major U.S. investment banks that comes out and says we're getting a bit jittery, it's time to switch equities uh, into bonds. Uh, but but that, I don't think that's any time soon, but that that has the potential to unsettle people um, because that's what asset allocators do. They work out at some point the bond yield earnings yield trade-off becomes such that it's time to switch. 
But on the equities front, I know we haven't got a lot of time in this interview, but um, you know the, the the outlook for U.S. corporate earnings is is um, this year certainly they'll do 22% earnings growth, and next year they'll do 12%. Confidence is high, um, so I think money really wants to stay in equities. But at some point, as David mentioned, bond yields broke out of that 312 level. At some point, 10-year bonds will. will Give some trouble to investors. It'll, it'll cause some angst, mm. but 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 not seeing it yet. I suspect you know, we've got you know, non-farm payrolls in the US coming out tomorrow night, Friday time uh, in, in Australia, and uh, if they see a very big uh, increase in uh, employment, you see you know unemployment fall a touch to uh, you know multi-decade lows, and if you see average hourly earnings start to accelerate again, like we saw last month, then you know, that could really risk jackknifing in those uh, those long yields. And then I think it would really get interesting. I, I don't think equity markets, in my personal opinion, would have too much of a trouble of like a gradual drift high. We've seen this year that you no, know, no, the yields have gone up and it hasn't really derailed the, uh, the the stock market rally there. But if you start seeing a real increase, a sharp increase, then I think that's when it's going to be a, a trigger point for at least a, a short bout of profit taking. Seasonally, we're on track for it too, because September, October is traditionally a weak window for equity markets. Mm. It's a weak window, especially for the US market. Um, if you're going to pick a month where the market uh, or a period, that's September, Everybody October. Everybody gets back from the Hamptons uh, in <laughs> September and they come, back, they come, come and back in and say, why do you own that? Yeah. Yeah, Can you so, please sell it? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, look, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be a scaremonger, but um, at some point sure. um, we're going to have there's going to be discussion about at what point, what what is that level of ten-year bond that's going to unsettle investors? Well, what is it? Is it is it is it three is it three point two eight? Is it four yeah. percent? What's that number? No one knows where it's going to hit that restrictive point. It's going to go in and start curbing you know, economic growth, and that's the the great thing about this. You know, there's a whole lot of speculation that's going to go on, but no one's truly going to know that point until after it's happened. So. We'll, uh, we'll obviously see what happens in the uh, in the next uh, next little period. We guarantee you that we will talk about the yield curve and the t- uh, U.S. ten-year um, bond yield every week. I think on the show between now uh, and uh, Christmas. So um, one thing that this leads us into, uh, Ben, is we have to ask every single person. Well, I, I promise you we'll get on to um, bottom-up analysis of uh, small cap companies in a second. Um, but we always have to ask our guests, property, uh, Sydney and Melbourne, what is your take on this? What is my take on? What do you, uh, how do you think this is going to play out? in terms of the price declines and where it's going to lead um, the overall economy? Well, well, I mean, the fortunes of the Australian economy are, uh, as we speak, uh, are, are just fine. I think the consumer is in, in reasonable shape. I think uh, property is, as we've discussed a bit earlier, is has um, pulled back from its highs, but it's quite orderly. It's, a, it's, a, it's an orderly retracement in property prices. Um, so I think I think the, the the consumer is still is still strong and vital and and, and spending. So I think um, um, we're also enjoying just uh, about though. Yeah. I mean, there's been an increase in credit card debt. Um, yeah. So savings rate is running down. Um, retail sales sometimes a bit patchy from month to month. Yeah. So and job growth is reasonable. Therefore, the serviceability, the ability to service your credit card debt or your, 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 your the finance on your car is still thing, right? strong. Yeah. So they can finance it. As long as animal spirits, I'm a big believer along, along the journey and in the hard to quantify, hard to measure, but if animal spirits are on the right side of positive, uh, that, 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 that tends to 
tends tends to go a long way. But I was just going to say that, um, so you've got a consumer that's in, in reasonable shape. There's no great distress that's obvious there. You've got extraordinary levels of um, public sector investment, infrastructure investment occurring, which is under pretty well underwriting the vitality of the east coast of Australia. That's nice and strong. Government spending is, is actually tracking nicely as well. That's up. Um, and general levels of investment are um, outside residential investment, so we're talking about um, um, non-resi investment, is also quite buoyant. We've got a revival in the resources space. Mm. Um, that's happening. So that's what's giving the West Coast a little bit of a fillip, which had been a little down and feeling beaten up since sort of 2012. Very welcome for the people over in Perth, I'm sure. Absolutely. So I think you'll find across a number of areas of demand where you want to see demand to underwrite um, what's happening in the economy, it's kind of, it's all sort of falling into place. We've had in the small cap space an extraordinary amount of merger and acquisition activity in calendar 18, probably the most we've had in in five or six years, um, across a number of different stocks and sectors, from biotechs to REITs to good good quality industrial businesses. Um, That tells me that it's not only portfolio investors like myself that are seeing value and seeing an attraction. It's corporates who invest real money in real assets for long-term settings, um, and that activity is up and going upwards. So I think confidence is good across business and consumer, and that's showing itself as being manifest in better share prices, Australian share market at 10-year highs, give or take. Um, and I think we're on the march. You asked me what I think and where's it all going. I think our share market, which is at 6,100 on the ASX 200, is on its way to 6,800, in my humble opinion. Um, so we're going to get back to the old highs that we struck before the GFC. We're one of the few Western stock markets that has not returned to its pre-GFC high. And I think there's enough uh, in the mix. There's enough going right locally um, in the Australian economy for us to make a decent uh, a decent attempt at 6,800. No so, guarantees, so, mind you. I'm going to come back on the show and get and get and get pilloried. <laughs> but I think um, I think um, we took out the the 10-year highs not long ago. I think the momentum is sufficient where, where, where Australian equities move higher. So will you come back on the show in six months and we can talk about that again? Now, not that I'm... I love hearing the bull case because the media naturally, just it's the, way, the nature of the beast, um, loves the bear case, right? So, and people love reading about the... Like, it's important to be aware of the risks. And that's why I think... Um, in my humble opinion, <laughs> seeing the pattern of traffic to, um, to, to, to various takes on the market that um, basically people are tuned into the risks more than they are tuned into the upside, right? So I really like hearing this case well articulated that, you know, maybe there's a 10% upside in, in, in the ASX. You think the uh, the falling Aussie dollar? Obviously, it's uh, it's down like uh, 13, 14 percent uh, from late January this year. Do you think that's maybe dissuading some foreign investors from uh, from investing in the market as well? And that potentially, once the Aussie dollar shows some signs of stabilisation and maybe starting to drift higher, do you reckon that might encourage some offshore investors back uh, to dabble in the market? Spot on, David. I mean that that, that is the, one, the 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 missing element. The Australian share market really is the is the is the absence of international investors, and for good reason. Um, the Aussie dollar looks like it's it can't find a bottom, um, and as as you correctly point out, foreign investors don't place a bet. They have two things they've got to get right. They've got to pick the right the, the correct stock with the most appealing fundamentals, and they've got to get the currency right, or, or there's no point uh, even at trying. So there's no doubt in my mind that that has dissuaded 
um, a good chunk of international money from coming into this market. I, I've, no, I've no doubt about that. So stabilisation of the currency, um, and more than, I mean, really look at it in terms of we need the US dollar to show signs of exhaustion mm. on its rally to then set the scene for the Aussie dollar to try and base, and and and, um, and that will be the, a necessary precondition for international money to return. I have no doubt about that. And they might even buy the banks because they're so cheap. Um, I think they are buying some of our resource names at the moment. International investors are buying BHP and, and Rio, Woodside, Santos. They're finding those sorts of stocks, notwithstanding currency risks, are, are well, worth, uh, well worth exposure to, and that's happening. But you're right. Um, the currency needs to, um, it needs to exhibit stability, which it has not done for some time. Time for a quick word from our sponsor. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. We're here with Ben Griffiths, co-founder and senior portfolio manager at Eli Griffiths. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. I'm here with David Scott. So one of the really fascinating questions for me on that, Ben, is the rise of index investing. Um, So and the the, the, uh, global mandates that a whole bunch of um, companies have. I just want to quickly ask you about this before we dive into how you assess companies, um, because I'm really fascinated to hear about your approach there. But um, when you talk about support levels for Australian stocks, one of the things you, you touched on just before was this area where, say, for example, you might you know get a, a bit of support for the currency, and there's an outlook that maybe the currency is going to start to appreciate, maybe, you know, 18 months' time, the RBA might be starting to lift rates, it'll be supportive of the currency, etc. Index investing has become huge um, globally, uh, and it's big in Australia too. Um, And how do you think that is affecting prices for individual stocks as you see it? Because clearly you look at companies on a company-by-company basis. Yeah, well, I think it's um, um, passive investing, index investing, is uh, a, a, an evolution of the modern marketplace. Um, it's in, a, in, a, in an art form in the United States where you can invest in any form of index or exotic index or ETF of any construct. Um, we're, we're a fair way behind that, but still we have substantial index participation. Um, index investing is it has its place. Um, it's not going away. Um, we do, you think it, seen... do you think it distorts prices a little bit for some companies? Well, possibly, but it, it, it'll work both ways. We haven't really seen index investing uh, or passive investment styles work under heavy sell-offs. Um, um, I recall seeing a sell-off on Wall Street once a number of years ago, one of the mini crashettes that we've seen where a consumer staples ETF, which is made up of a bunch of uh, consumer staple names, individual names, and the ETF intraday was down like 38%, while the constituent members were down 5 to 6% as there was a mad scramble to get money out. And so the illiquidity at times of the actual ETF vehicle versus the underlying structures can distort things. So we haven't seen um, in a passive investing, index investing, really tested under a, under a meltdown scenario. Um, and they're not all, not every index product is just a conventional, you know, uh, it might be a bank index where you've got the major, four major banks. Some of the index products, especially in the United States, will be, will be long 
two units of Westpac and short one unit of that and, and long. So they're, they're quite exotic in their construct. We haven't seen how it gets tested under under um, un, un, under sort of duress or under crisis. You've, you've suddenly made me really concerned. I think people who may have been uh, paying attention earlier in the year, the uh, the inverse of the VIX, the XIV, uh, where you could basically bet on no no suppressed uh, volatility when that blew up. No, that that was the first time that was tested under duress, and we saw what happened there. And so now all of a sudden, uh, given the uh, the rise and rise of passive investing in ETFs around the world, I'm suddenly got uh, some heebie-jeebies. I was just thinking, geez, uh, hopefully not the same kind of reaction otherwise that yeah, will well, be was, there was this period uh, last year where literally mums and dads were shorting the VIX in the US mm. um, you know f- family money going out you know I think I'll short volatility yeah. Holy wow. Um, well, because it was such a reliable trade at correct. the time. The, the game had worked for years until it didn't work one day. Yeah. And, and, and whatever dollar you've made out of that trade on umpteen attempts, uh, you've given it back plus interest um, on, on, on the correction. I love Warren Buffett's quote where he says, uh, his comments on index investing, he says, yeah, it's a funny thing investing on the, on the basis of size rather than quality. And, uh, and I think that's true. I mean, investing in a product because it's big and liquid and deep and you get exposure, uh, or you can take your hard-earned savings and actually go and buy a portfolio of stocks that are well thought out, well valued, well managed. I mean, boy, oh boy, that's a, that's a, I mean, Warren Buffett's right. Again, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wacker way to invest. So this leads me beautifully into um, one of the things that you're going to be able to share with us, some of your great insights for um, like 30% returns on the small cap fund um, over the last year. How do you do it? Well, um, there's no straightforward, easy sort of uh, un- undo the box and there's the formula. Um, it, is, it is, as you might expect me to say, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hybrid of skilled managers uh, at the wheel, a skilled team, professional team that, we've, that have been through a few cycles. Um, it's, uh, it's discipline. It's knowing about um, risk, thinking about risk in terms of risky companies or riskiness at the company level, and then it's risk in terms of how you build a portfolio, uh, and then it's relying on a process that um, that will deliver you um, a screening and a list of stocks you should own and in what weights, and stocks you should be underweight and in what weights. It's that sort of um, it's that sort of thing. So you need it's a blending of experience, it's a blending of risk management. And it's um, and 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 the requirement for process, and then even then, even with all those elements put in place, you need to know that you really make the money out of exploiting the market's momentum. It's letting stocks run, let them go. Um, you know, the best story in the world with the best research and and a high level of conviction on the part of the manager, but you get off the trade too early. You put a put a stock on and and it and it, and it might go up fifty percent and you say oh, I think that's enough I'll, I'll I'll take the money now. I mean that is in my view it's kind of irresponsible. I mean stocks you must let stocks do their thing. You must let them run. You must let them truly exhaust exhaust themselves and you won't sell. What, at the what's what's price. your trigger point for for selling something? Because I I, I remember like five years ago um, um we talked about this before we came on the show but five years ago I saw you speak on a panel and it was fantastic you were talking about the you know it was yourself and Jeff Wilson um, and Jeff if you're listening we'd love to have you on the show at some point <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Jeff was and I asked both of you how much you were in cash and Jeff was forty two and you were five yeah. um, and like. I, Obviously, completely different 
contrasting investment styles, right? Um, Don't but, bet on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, but it was a fascinating, and that was five years ago, where you know um, we were just at the start of this massive run um, that we've seen, like explosive run in the S and P. That if you had told me that that's what was going to happen five years ago, I would never have believed you. Yeah, that was the, um, that was the September quarter of sixteen. Um, and it was a fascinating time in markets. And um, we, we let cash build a little and because the US stock market, the S&P 500, um, was the measure I looked at the time, was in a very broad range that had gone, that it had been trading within for about almost two years. And looking at it, again, talking about experienced team and having seen a few cycles, our team looked at it and thought, okay, is this a giant top, a giant exhaustion pattern that the US stock market is thrashing around where buyers are engulfing sellers who then get the upper hand on buyers who then buy, then, then take over sellers? And this thing thrashed out for 18 months, almost two years, and it was, which way is it going to go? Is this a big top about to sell? Or is this a massive recharging event where equities are recharging, re-energising, and then going to break topside? So we weren't sure, and we had cash, not 40%, um, <laughs> but we would have had cash close to 8%. We yeah. saw the break, and it was about September, October 2016, and it broke topside and did a little nice little technical move there. And as, as a team, we said, I think we've just seen which way this market's going in the US. It's going northwards. It's time to, time to invest. So when, when, when I made those comments back then at that particular uh, conference, the market had just broken out, so we got ourselves down to four percent cash, and we're looking for. So, so I, can, can I ask you when? Do, when do you decide to hit the red button? When you? Yeah. What makes you go right? We're done. Well, it, it it really is because our process will say that stocks are becoming too expensive, and I should spend a little bit of time talking about the process. And it is a process that we, yeah. Brian Ely and myself, developed, and the team has worked on since then. It's a process, investment process that embodies quantitative elements. And we call that our sort of GARP score, our growth at a reasonable price, PE, the PE ratio of the current year versus the next three years prospective earnings per share growth. So we get a valuation score, a GARP score, if you will, and many of the listeners will be aware of GARP. Um, that's, that's what you're paying for growth, fine. Um, and then we that's half of our scoring. And the other half of our scoring is a, um, is a qualitative assessment, a scorecard on our view of management and a view of the industry structure uh, that, that that company operates within. Now we score our stocks aggressively and, and and religiously along those lines. Now the score clearly is captive to the to the share price. And so no matter how good a stock score is, if the stock becomes rallies and rallies hard, unless the fundamental story, the underpinnings, the score is kept up with the price, um, which requires up, upgrades, requires a uh, tweaking upwards in the quality of the industry or the management, unless that keeps up with the, with the share price, our process will start saying these stocks are now excessively priced, you should be selling them. So at the risk of sounding flippant, Paul, the sell discipline that you're alluding to is the exact reverse to the buy signal. And um, and so when it flashes sell, we, um, we have to look at the holdings and say it wants to sell some of these things. Um, we need to, 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 to follow the process. Now we don't necessarily just, and sometimes you'll, you'll get an you'll get an erroneous um, sell signal, and we'll need to have a look at that and say, is this right? Are we are we really need to sell this thing? And and we'll work try and work out very quickly whether our scoring has been inadequate, um, or whether the market's got it wrong. Um, but essentially, do, the process. Do, do, the process do, do you, do you sack people if they sell too early? 
Um, no, we beat ourselves up if we sell too early on things. Right. But, but um, at the end of the day, as a professional investor, we talk to some 28 brokers who've got viewpoints and ideas and feed information to us. Um, at the end of the day, Paul, it's our decision as the investor to filter out David's going on with some nonsense over here on my right. You're coming through with some good information. I'm going to run with you for, for, for at this point. Um, so we filter out information and we, we feed it into the system, and into, our, into our process. It's always us. It's our responsibility to, to make decisions. You, you don't go blaming people. Um, it's up to us. No one gets sacked. Um, we can be cranky with people who um, have who, who got the wrong, wrong end of the stick on a stock or a story or, or how they've interpreted a result or a company meeting. End of the day... Um, we need to make the, we make the decisions. Uh, we live and die by whether we've set the portfolio right, and that includes the cash weight. How aggressive we should be with cash. Um, can I ask you a question? So the small companies fund is half a billion, um, uh, and it's long only. Is that the mandate? That's on, correct. Right. Long okay. Only. So how many companies roughly? Well, anywhere between. Part of our process, we decided years ago that a a a, a healthy range of Stock holdings would be between thirty-five and fifty-five basis points. Uh, that's correct. Right. Uh, no number, number of stocks in the portfolio. Oh, oh, right, okay. okay. And so we thought thirty-five is as concentrated uh, with a risk management hat on. Thirty-five is as concentrated as you should run it, and fifty-five is about as diversified as you, as you should let the portfolio go. Okay. Getting outside of those boundaries, um, and we've got competitors who would hold 85, 90 stocks in their in their portfolio. We think that's um, lazy, not not highlighting conviction. Um, and below 35 is sort of pushing the boundary in terms of concentration because yeah. things can things things go wrong with too, stocks. Too big exposure to one. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Things go wrong. Yeah, and obviously, like no, you're spreading. Like if you've got a whole bunch of uh, stocks in your portfolio, and then you start spreading yourself a little bit thin, it's hard to go and keep a track of you know how individual companies are faring. And then I can see how that maybe you won't be able to keep a track of something yeah. that may be price sensitive that you know, that you have missed because you're too busy concentrating on another stock. Sometimes the best story can all of a sudden be. Derailed. You, you can have a situation where um, a great CEO leaves suddenly um, for some reason, and something is unveiled that isn't isn't great. Um, I've seen great stories get derailed on the back of a fraud being committed by a CFO, yeah. and a story that we always thought was well managed, that was highly regarded by the market, all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden has been derailed, and we've got a big position. Um, the fundamental story might have changed, but I can tell you, um, well, the future of the company <laughs> could could be imperiled. So we always, when we go into battle every day, we're looking at number of stocks. Are we happy with the weights? What's the price action telling us? That stock's been under selling pressure for the last week. We need to get to the bottom. Uh, we think the story's on, um, on track. Is the market telling us something that we don't know? And at the end of the day, the market is this very efficient, Buffett calls it the, the weighing machine. It's a voting machine and it's a weighing machine. It's all of that. It's weighing information and you just have to assume every day we go into battle, I just assume, it's safer to assume that the market knows better than we do, and uh, and we we we're never so so um, bold and cocky that we, we we think otherwise. We always believe the the market knows. Do we need to investigate that continuing share price weakness? Um, we are coming up against time, and but I want to keep going. So can you give me another few minutes? That'll sure. be all right. Absolutely. Okay, great. Um, so one of the big questions there, right? And it's harder for at the institutional level to ask. Um, the strategists this because they won't talk about it because um, they can't um, management mm -hmm. right so uh, you mentioned that um, one of your factors in terms of how you build a scorecard for a company is the quality of the management right now so 
like particularly in the small cap sector, right, where you've got sometimes a company that has almost no capital. Um, uh, the, the, like there might be micro caps, there might be, you know, um, the, the, the share price might be two cents. Um, and there might be a mining exploration company with a hope or an idea. Um, there are lots of these guys. There are lots of them, and, and, and there are lots of shysters out there, and a lot of people have been burned over the decades um, in the Australian stock market by stories from management that they were going to um, you know, build this and find that and innovate the other. Um, can you talk about how you assess management and how much management do you see on a day-to-day -day basis and how it all works into your assessment? It's a, it's a great question, Paul, and it hits, I think, right right to the heart of, um, of small company investing, um, and that would go for any market, not just the Australian market. It's um, investing time in, in understanding the management teams, um, assessing their history, um, uh, uh, where they've been. There are many highwaymen that have been, that recycle their careers and turn up um, on the doorstep um, expecting to... Um, raise money, uh, attract our interest. Um, I guess that's where an older, more seasoned team has seen a few a few of these teams come and go, and they do come up every cycle, they return. Um, it is so critical to the success of our portfolio, uh, I can't tell you, both our small cap and our emerging company portfolio. We need to be able to triangulate strong views on management teams, or we literally cannot invest in the company. Uh, that consumes a lot of work. Um, and then you come across a, a manager that you've either seen before in a previous life or you've spent time, you've spent time getting to know them and you don't always invest straight away, you want to watch them for a while. I mean, I'd nominate four, if I may, with the time available, four managers that we have backed uh, for a period of time, quite a period of time, who I would put on a pedestal as some of Australia's leading corporate leaders, uh, Vic Bansal, who, who runs CleanAway, who was a disciple of the Warren Buffett way and worked for a Buffett company and came to Australia and turned CleanAway clean around when that business um, seemed to investors to be unturnaroundable, if that's a word. Unturnaroundable is a good one. Scott um, McMillan runs Alliance yep. Aviation, and Scott is um, one of those guys that runs his business as if, um, well, in fact, it is his family. It's everything. He runs that business with enormous passion and dedication. Um, I'd add him to my list. Rally Finlayson runs Saracen Minerals, a gold miner out of the West. Um, and Devon Billamoria, who runs Smart Corp, who do fleet management and salary packaging. Those four individuals, those four men, um, not only do they sit astride extraordinary businesses that have had extraordinary share price performances because they've had extraordinary operating results, those four gentlemen epitomise the sort of leaders, the sort of corporate backers, the sort of the sort of um, what, what, management what, teams that, that, that literally um, that give us enormous comfort beyond the modelling we're doing, beyond the research. Their business model, their sector. All the, they're, what, they're what, makes them good? what makes them good? Is there a common feature? The common feature um, is they're experienced. They take the role very seriously. Mm. They, they give it their all. Um, they more often than not have got a reasonable level of alignment, personal wealth on the line. They, they, they are stockholders themselves. They're... They're not traders, they own 5% or 10% or something. In yeah. some cases, um, absolutely. Um, they, are, they, they have, an, they have a, um, an objective to achieve. They get after it. Um, they come and see us as often as they need to. They present um, to, 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 to the investors at large. 
um, where they articulate their strategy and their strategy doesn't deviate. If it does, there's an explanation. When they make acquisitions, they are normally very considered and, and they don't pay too much and they're on message. Um, I think um, respect for capital... So this is a great laundry list of things yeah, that no, you shouldn't is. do if you're... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that comes back to your original question about, about um, you know, passive investing. Yeah. Um, you know, passive investors don't do this work. Passive investors yeah. are just buying yeah. into okay. a product because it's, um, it's available. Uh, active management, which is what small cap investing is about, active mm-hmm. management is about getting comfortable finding and sticking with the likes of those four gentlemen I just mentioned, uh, staying with managers like that. Um, and even then, they can let you down. Even then, they can they can have a, a lapse of judgment. Even then, they can make a bad acquisition. Um, um, how but, much how much do you short um, out of the so one point eight billion? Yeah, no, we, we don't short at all. We're long only. Really, we're long yeah. only. If nothing, if I'm getting anxious about a stock, we'll cut it. Right. We'll go to zero. Do you lend for shorting? Uh, no, we don't. No, as a, as a manager, we don't we don't do that. Um, we basically use our cash weight. Our, our cash weight will will be the uh, the the um, the um, determinant of our of, of how bullish or bearish we are um, that, that's that's how you, you should read us but now we're long only um, we're long only for a number of reasons um, shorting is one of the toughest skills to perfect and to do well um, shorting is a, a whole new set of a whole new investment mindset requires uh, the whole team to be involved it requires a very very capable dealer and we've certainly got that, but we haven't gone down that path. Um, but getting shorts right is very, very difficult. And especially getting shorts right in a rising market um, is, is extra difficult. Um, my theory is you should be looking for buy candidates in rising markets. You should be hunting short candidates in falling markets. Um, so we've had a rising market since pretty well the GFC. Um, so I think our, our, our efforts and energies are best directed to long stories, long counters in a rising market. And as I said, backing right management with a, with a company that screens and, and scores well, that should be in the portfolio. Um, but shorting, I'm not saying we won't think about a shorting product down the track. It's something where I think our skills at this precise point in time aren't well enough honed and we're not going to risk investors' money doing something we're not competent at. Um, certainly this conversation has been an absolutely fascinating walk through how you um, think about buying and holding companies and, and investing in things for the long term, finding the right kind of management. Um, if any listeners out there are curious about shorting, go back through the catalogue of um, some of the podcasts and listen to um, the episode we did with John Hempton, who is one of the... Uh, Celebrated short, uh, for long short funds, uh, shall we say, and he goes through the whole methodology. And the common feature was that he paid extremely close attention to the management team of those companies that he was looking to short. Exactly. That was a key theme. Exactly. Yeah, it was it, 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 where he started with everything. Is you know, if he finds somebody with a bit of a record, questionable record as a director or an executive at a company, he would. Um, consider that for a short. Um, so, um, Ben, you've been outlaying the um, some of the reasons to buy and hold. Uh, it's great because sometimes I think on the show we there's a little bit uh, too much doom and gloom, and we are fundamentally optimists uh, at Business Insider. So it's uh, it's great to have you on here to have the, uh, really articulate this. Thank you. Um, 
Let me ask you uh, quickly, you can talk your book quickly. Last year, um, 12 months, spectacular run, 32 point something, was it? How much was it? Yeah, around that number. Um, a good number all the same, our, our best number ever um, for, for, the, for the 12 months to um, uh, June 30. So pretty chuffed. Yeah, right. The numbers. Uh, and over 10 years? Um... Over 10 years, on an annualised basis, we did um, around 9% after fees um, per annum. Um, this is across all of the funds? That's, yeah, that's the yeah. small company fund. So we did right. about 9% um, versus the benchmark. If you're an index investor, you'd be getting 3% per annum. So the power of um, active management, I guess, um, you know, gives you almost 9%. Um, with a bit of luck, of course, um, we picked the right stocks. But certainly, um, a, a nice outperformance uh, on, a, on a per annum basis, um, going back ten years. And you've had to, we've had to traverse the GFC through that time too. So, so your numbers have been good. Thank you for thank you for noticing, Paul. Uh, that's okay. Well, well, when I saw that, I, I um, you know. Um, uh, I thought that we should get you on the podcast, and I sort of—I I knew you were very—you uh, had a great record and a great reputation. And I um, just looked up the numbers, and I was like, "That can't be right. Thirty-three percent in the last year." Um, so well done. Um, anybody who can make thirty-three percent in a year on uh, on a buck is uh, is pretty impressive. Uh, North Bondi, yeah. Surf Life Saving. Yeah. Uh, this is your thing every morning. Uh, one of the things that I think is very, very common in successful people is that they have great um, interests and things they do in the morning, get up early and get involved with, uh, muck in, um, particularly here in Australia in, in, in Sydney in our beautiful city. Um, and uh, North Bondi is, uh, is your thing. Correct. Now, that's right, Paul. I've been actively involved in North Bondi Surf Lifesaving Club since 1980. Uh, when I was a young fellow, and uh, my interest has not lessened any during that time. Uh, through that period, I, I've done my patrolling. Um, I've competed in, in, in surf boats and competitively there and, and, and rode uh, with, with reasonable results um, in, in surf lifesaving. Today, I'm, I'm in the gym most mornings down there. Um, and I, one thing I'm particularly proud of is um, one of those sort of things where you, you take a lot from a, a, an organisation, and I took a lot as a young bloke growing up um, with surf lifesaving and patrolling every third weekend as it was then and competing every weekend. Um, you take a lot out and it, and it really shapes you as, a, as an individual. Um, but what thrilled me greatly was about six or seven years ago was, was um, basically, or in fact even longer than that, it was probably closer to eight or nine years ago, um, was me joining the rebuilding fund, the rebuilding committee. I was chairman of the, the North Bondi Surf Club Rebuild Committee and spent almost six years raising the, the, the funds and attracting interest and, uh, and we were able to basically knock down and, and, and rebuild an extraordinary clubhouse down at North Bondi there, which is probably the envy of the movement um, it's, it's won numerous um, architectural awards. Um, it hosts our 2,000 members or holds our 2,000 members, not all at once, but, it, um, but over the course of the season. Um, it's a beacon for the movement. Um, it's prominent on Bondi and all those uh, listeners to the podcast that get down to Bondi. Um, uh, have a look at the club and, and, uh, and please admire it. A leading architect got behind it. Mention your name and they get a discount? Well, mention mention my name, and and um, someone might even throw sand at you. I don't know. I don't know what happens if you mention my name, but it was certainly something that I was able to give back, Paul. And so, surf yeah. life saving has been a, a very generous part of my life, and and it's great great to be able to have um, given back. 
it's an it's an incredible movement Australia wide, um, and done at an extraordinary level of professionalism. And anyway, it's a, it's been a big part of my life. So well well spotted. You've done your research there. I see. Yeah. That's exactly right. And and it does no doubt about it has has shaped me as a as a uh, as a person. It's it's extraordinary thing. Um, I but there are probably a handful of things I could take away my thumb. Uh, on my hand and, and um, still kind of on, on one hand the things that I still find extraordinary about Australia um, one is the optimi- optimism of the people but the other thing is this culture around the beaches right with safety um, and just how you know when you're coming in from overseas and you're on that Qantas flight and you see the video where they explain to you like how goddamn important it is to swim between the flags, um, you know, don't stuff this up, and how seriously everybody takes it. Like you go down, you know, anywhere south coast uh, of New South Wales, up towards Newcastle, all that kind of stuff. Everybody might be hundreds of people at the beach, uh, two um, surf lifesavers on, and everybody is swimming between the, pl- the flags, apart from the surfers. Um, who are out, um, you know, playing with the sharks? Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's it's an it's an extraordinary thing. It really is a a great thing, and it's great to have um, uh, its backers, uh, yourself included. That's fantastic. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I've been here as always with David Scott. Been a fantastic chat. Really enjoyed it. Our guest this week has been Benjamin Griffiths. He's the co-founder and senior portfolio manager at. EliGriffiths.com.au. You can look him up there. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can we get you back in six months and we'll talk about um, where you thought the uh, the ASX was going to go? You sure can. Happy to come in here and and uh, and have a chat, Paul and and David. It's been uh, it's been great to come on today. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, the show is produced by Darren Lake. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is under Devils and Details on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. David Scott's on Twitter. I'm there as well. Paul Colgan. Uh, We'll catch you next time.